0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are the God who gives us hope. We only have one hope, but it's a sufficient hope, what you have done for us in Christ. And so we say thank you. And I pray, Lord, now that as we turn to your word and consider our need amidst brokenness and sorrow and a certain bit of of lowliness to it, a certain bit of, of down, Lord, well, that as we consider that and even as we consider the, kind of the, the way the music has, has framed our thinking so far, would you allow us, Father, to follow you into the, the down, the, the need, and then not to stay there, but to see the hope and to revel in him. Do that work for us this morning, Lord. Give clarity to your word. Give clarity to my speaking and our listening. Stir life in us, please. Would you send your spirit to this room in, in an awakening and in a stirring way? Would you send your spirit, Lord, now to us here to cause us to, to listen with ears that hear and to see with eyes that actually see the invisible? Move us, Lord, please. Build your church. Honor the name of the Son. Would you steer our time here this morning? Would you bring out what needs to be heard by particular individuals, perhaps? What needs to be heard by all of us, but maybe some in particular. Would you stir our time here and speak to them and, and give them hope amidst sorrow, give them uplifting amidst being downcast. Lord, do do this kind of work with us this morning as you reveal Jesus to our eyes. Help us to see him, to honor him, for his glory and for the good of his church. Here we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 9 where we continue on with the flow of the events that we saw last week, beginning last week, with Jesus and his three disciples, three of his twelve, up on a mountain. After giving this this hard call to discipleship that we saw in the middle of the chapter, we spent some time looking at that paragraph, after that call, Jesus led three of the twelve up to a mountain to pray and while he was praying, as we saw last week, he was changed transfigured, altered. His face, it says, was altered, and and his clothes so altered that, in fact, he himself was was ablaze like a a perpetual lit-up bolt of lightning, shining. And while he's standing there shining like this, he's speaking with Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament figures who have arrived to discuss with him speak with him about his work of salvation, which is about to come to a head in Jerusalem shortly. The text uses the word exodus. They're speaking with him about his exodus. This work by which he sets his people free from bondage to sin and free to bondage to God. Moses accomplished his exodus. He set people free out of bondage. Jesus is about to accomplish the exodus. That exodus was pointing towards the exodus from sin. While he's standing there, ablaze in the glory of heaven, he is the Lord of glory, and it shows there in him. But then we also hear it as the voice from heaven and out of the cloud, God's very voice, speaks and and draws our attention. This is the one. To him you must listen. This is my son. This is the Messiah. We see God's glorious king shining as, as he's identified as God's king. There's, there's a glimpse of, of the kingdom come there. It, it is an amazing, an amazing moment that did not last. They came down from the mountaintop experience, literally so, back down to earth, and there's another great crowd and another distraught parent and another vicious demon. They, they are up here in glory and they come back down to earth and face this. And that, that, that tension there of, of this Jesus and this Jesus, of, of the exalted one and the present one, whose home is heaven, but who's living with us here. That tension is what we're going to explore in the passage here. And As we do that, what what kind of comes out to us is is something of of marveling and something that's humbling, something that, that as we combine those two things, should lead us, I I think if you're a Christian, it should lead you to to a, a thankful, encouraged rejoicing, even while it's a humbling. This passage should be a humbling passage and a passage that builds encouragement in you. So let me read it, verses 37 to 43, and then make two observations. Luke 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Two observations. Here's the first one. In this still fallen world, Jesus is still the same merciful, majestic Lord. In this still-fallen world, Jesus is still the same merciful and majestic Lord. Verse 37 says, On the next day, this, this, this event happened immediately after, previous one. It's, it's right next to it, right after these two worlds, if you will, are put right next to each other. And as always happens in life, when you have two things that are in, in close comparison, the contrasts show themselves clearly. If, if you're gone on vacation, you go on the holidays, and you go lie on the beach for a week in the sun, and then you fly back to your snow-covered city, you get off the airplane, and it feels like it's twice as cold. The, the winter cold feels worse, even though it's, it's not actually that much worse. It's just that you were having a moment in, in the sun and tasting and, and seeing the sunshine and the warmth. Well, that's what Jesus and his disciples have been just experiencing. They've seen the sun. They've seen the kingdom of heaven with the voice of God speaking and Jesus, a in glory. you got to picture all that from last week it's life that's wonderful, life as it should be. Peter's got the right idea when he says it's wonderful that we be here. Let's stay if we can. That, that is what is right. And then they're back here, and there's something deeply wrong here. Everything, in fact, deeply wrong here. Something is not as it's supposed to be. And the wrongness leaps out to them, and Jesus in particular, in, in a way that's different, than in a way that's more gripping for them than it is for those who are stuck in the middle of it. For the people who are in the crowd, for the disciples there, for the ones who are in the middle of that mess, even for us reading it, these events seem, oddly if you can say this, common. I mean, if we haven't, we haven't quite read this story, but don't you, as you read this, don't you feel kind of like, again... Here's another large crowd, and here's another distraught parent, and another human being in trouble, and another demon possession. You know, third verse, same as the first. This is so common. It's so common in the Gospel of Luke. We read it, we we just take it in, but stop for a second. The one word that catches me as I read this, shattered. I don't know if that struck you as odd when you're reading it through. Here's another family and another demon and a stop. Evil shattering a boy, shattering him. And he hardly ever leaves him, it says. So they have, they have no moments' peace from this. It just keeps shattering and shattering and shattering and, sh- and destroying him. And they can't get away from it. And nobody can do anything about it. So they just what? Live with it. It's whole life. It's their new normal. Being shattered by a demon. And on and on they go. Evil bearing down on them, destroying all of their family's life. And, And we read about that again and again. It is what's common in this book and it's what's common for us in life. Evil shattering people, not in the same way, of course, but in a real way. We live in a world that's shattered, that is constantly broken and falling into pieces because of evil everywhere all of the time. But it is our normal. And we are no longer very much impressed by it, nor are even really noticing it. La- last week, there's a mass shooting in, in a nightclub, right? And when that happened, I realized, oh, I'd forgotten about the mass shooting at Virginia Tech which had been the previous worst mass shooting, and then I realized, oh, I forgot about the one at the university over there and the high school over there. You realize how this stuff, we just forget about it all? It keeps getting, the ante keeps getting raised. Tragedy is so common that we just, it's our new normal. That's just one great big event, never mind the, the individual evil and struggle and hardship that we all face. And it's just our normal. But in the passage, we have one statement that's an alert to what is not supposed to be normal. Heightened by the contrast, the three and Jesus come down from the mountain. They come come back from the sun and the warmth, and they come into the, the cold, and they see it for what it is, and Jesus speaks... This phrase in verse forty-one: "O, oh, faithless and twisted generation! How long am I to be with you and bear with you?" He looks around at the crowd, and the father, and the boy, and the disciples, and his assessment, echoing a, a somewhat frequent indictment in the Old Testament. This language echoing the Old Testament language. What a faithless and crooked, twisted generation. This generation. It's a way of saying, people, humanity, everybody present, including the disciples, humankind. This generation, faithless, filled with rampant unbelief. He looks at people, and what he sees in them is, is not consistent and constant and wholehearted dependence on him and trust in God. Instead, there is a, there is a forgetting of him and a turning away from him onto a twisting, a, a turning onto all kinds of different paths. Whatever it is that seems reasonable to people, whatever seems profitable in the moment, that's where people go. Men and women and boys and girls of every stripe, faithless and twisted And so the life of this world is sin-laden and broken and fallen, and it is far, 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 far from where they just were, what life of the kingdom is like, with the glory of God shining all through it. A faithless and twisted generation, which is not complimentary at all, how long do I have to be here and to bear with you? Which might strike us as odd, perhaps, because it seems like that's wrong. When people talk like that, I mean, how, how would it go if I said to you, Johnny, how long am I going to have to put up with you? That's not a nice thing to say. And if I say it and I mean that, it is the height of arrogance. It's, it's disdain for a person. It presumes, if I say something like that, it presumes I'm superior and you are inferior and, and your presence with me, my presence with you is, a, is distasteful and burdensome and, and a hassle at least, annoying, annoying. How long am I going to have to put up with you? How long will I have to be with and bear with you? So, when we say that, it's, it's wrong. It sounds like it is insulting and arrogant. And so, if Jesus says something like that, we read that, we kind of feel like that's not right. Sounds arrogant. But it isn't when Jesus says it, because all it is is just a recognition of what's true. This is the part that should humble us. Not, you could go two ways with this, and let me encourage you. Go the path of humble sorrow, not the path of of anger and awfulness and beating down. Go the path of humble sorrow with this because there should be something humbling and sorrowful here. When Jesus says this, it is just simply the truth. He is certainly superior, and we are certainly inferior. The previous passage showed that to us clearly. He is the Lord of glory. For him to leave that and to, to descend to this place down here, to even just to walk down into the midst of that crowd, is to come into the midst of, of so much that is wrong and to come into the midst of people who are themselves inferior, and we are so often completely clueless about this. The difference, you even put it just, just I have to do it with my hands like this, It's does nothing for even what physically is the difference between a mountain and a valley, but let alone the, the actual difference between God in glory and humankind, creation. We are not what we should be, as we sang earlier. We are far from the life of the kingdom, the life that Jesus expects, that Jesus commands. Think about, just let this sit on you in a sobering way. We have read and and we approve of, but how far short do we fall of what Jesus says in the the Sermon on the Mount? The world that we live in is broken and faithless and twisted and crooked and, and that's yes about me. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do them good. That would be a wonderful idea if I did that. Every one of us. That's where we are, right? That would be wonderful if I did that. My, my enemies, let alone even just the people who are bothersome, who are kind of annoying for me and can't really profit me that much. If I was to think about that and see him going on Do not judge and condemn people. Sin, we have to evaluate, condemn, judge, sin, indeed. But not people. Instead, forgive people, be kind to them, bless them, pour into their laps a full measure of goodness. That would be great if I did that, but I don't. That's his kingdom life commands and how far short we fall of that. And we are, if we are honest, we are so self-centered that we rarely even see it. If we had a moment in which we, with Peter, were to to, to rise up there and to see on the mountaintop the Jesus of glory, we would, with Isaiah, cry out, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The problem is not them ones out there. It's me. It's you. It, It is us. This is who we are. We, even Christians, he includes the disciples in this, even we Christians, faithless and twisted. Are are you different? Absolutely. We're going to come to that. Brother and sister, how often we walk in unbelief and how often we walk on the paths that seem good to us and right to us in our own eyes. This is the truth about us, and Jesus is completely right when he says it, and furthermore, he is completely right when he longs for other. How long do I have to be here? It would be wrong, in fact, for Jesus to say, this is great, I'm perfectly happy with this. No, he knows. He was just on the mountain. He was just ablaze in glory. He just was in the presence of the Father. His voice thundering. That's right. That is what he is for. That's where he's from. He wants the glory to be restored to him. He prays for that in John 17. He longs for that. And he has a, a discontent with this, which is entirely appropriate. He is sorely troubled and deeply provoked in his spirit by what he sees all around him, part of which we ourselves contribute to. Don't go this way. Don't don't go into the getting banged by it, but go this way into into the humbled and sorrowful. Grab a hold of that. Don't let it slip away because you have to hold on to this and see this if you're going to catch the real point of the passage. This is not the real point of the passage, but it's critical to see the real point of the passage. We have to understand this part of verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, including us, We are fallen in sin. We often wander away from Him. We are not what we should be. There is something here that is majestic about Jesus, astonishing about God at work in Christ. That's where they end in verse 43. They saw something that made them go, whoa. And part of it will get if you first get what I'm talking about right now. We, me, you, even you, Christian, are so often faithless and so often prone to wander. And Jesus sees it and knows it and appropriately comments on it and longs for it to be over, but... But look, this is the point. What comes next? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Throwing up his hands and going back up the mountain, forget this. These people are a bunch of losers for crying out loud. Is that what's next? No! That's what's amazing. It should be but it isn't it should be but it isn't bring your son here he says bring your son here and jesus then rebuked who the crowd the father the disciples No. He rebuked the unclean spirit, the demon, and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And then what follows that is the rest of the gospel where Jesus sets his face towards the cross to move out and accomplish his exodus to deliver this unbelieving and twisted generation. From its unbelief and waywardness, from itself. Do you see that? Because that is astonishing. That is a God of majestic mercy, astonishing and majestic mercy. This is the Lord of glory who did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't stay up there, but instead he let that go and did not count inequality with man something to be grasped. But he let that go and became one of us, came down here on purpose, waded down into the muck of this fallen world to deal with the fallenness in you. Not in them ones out there, in you. To redeem you and to to free us, his people, to heal us. What a kind and merciful God this is. Marvelously so. Seen right here. Do not, don't let go of the I'm the faithless and I'm the twisty. That's what shows the, the mercy. but don't also miss it this way and say, there's the, the unbelief, and I, I better shape up because Jesus is angry with me, and if I don't start believing and start walking on the right path, He's not going to deal with me in kindness." No, the passage says, "This is you, and while you are yet that, He deals with you in great kindness to heal. He is majestic in mercy not after you've fixed things, because you can't fix things. He's majestic in mercy. For God to have anything to do with me is amazing, as it is astonishing. For Him to have anything to do with me as a sinner in unbelieving waywardness is astonishing. It is a a display of great mercy. Sure, indeed, Certainly, it is a mercy with backbone. He always calls for repentance, yes. He wants us to to move away from unbelief and to move away from waywardness and to to walk trusting him. He is a God of, of mercy and a God of justice. Justice must be done. In fact, that's why he was sent to do the justice that needed to be done, to go to the cross you realize that's where the, the mercy and the justice of God meet, is at the cross. If you, if you don't know that, hear that. When I say that he's a God of mercy, and, and I hope we all are drawn into celebrating that, into to worshiping that, I do not mean that he is a God of anything goes. He is a God of mercy and a God of justice. And while those, where those two things meet, mercy and justice, is at the cross. For you, if you take him up on this great merciful offer, that at the cross, he will take care of your sin penalty and he will redeem you and save you. This Jesus, this Jesus is the only way that you can be mercifully forgiven by a just God. So come to him. If you haven't, come to him. But Christian, I know I'm talking mostly to Christians here, and I know that you know this. This is written to you who know this. This is written, if you recall the book, so that you would know what you know. This is meant to fall on you and impact you in an encouraging way, to make you aware of perhaps humbled and and sorrowful first, but not finally, first over your sin, but then to be tremendously encouraged because what it says is you don't have to fear God. You don't have to ever look upon a God that is like fed up with you and walks away. You don't have to perform for him. You have a God who stands opposite you who is never exasperated with you and tired of you and done. And you have a God who stands beside you when one who stands across from you accuses you and, and tempts you towards despair and sorrow at your, at your total mess. Do you ever live there? Do you ever live there disgusted with yourself? You live there. There, you have become acquainted with the one who is the accuser, who speaks to you, points a finger at, and speaks to you and says, "Look, you wretch!" In that moment, where you are, the one who stands beside you says, "Amazing grace has saved a wretch like you." He doesn't say, "No, that's not true. You're not a wretch." No, that's not true. You aren't faithless. You aren't twisted. He says, yeah, and I am majestically merciful, full of amazing grace. And you are clean. You're clean. There is relief there. There's relief there when you look at your difficult circumstances, maybe things that haven't actually been caused by you but have come upon you, and you feel like God's probably abandoning me. God's probably, because of that other thing that I did, whatever that is, because of that, He's probably saying, There, let me let you sit in that for a little while. We, we, we adopt such bizarre views of God, but we adopt them that. Taking the dog's head and smearing its nose and stuff. To teach you not to do that anymore. We adopt that view of God sometimes. Maybe not all of us, but some of us. No. It is my kindness that leads you to repentance. I don't stick your nose in that. I grab your head and I stick your nose like this. So you will look up, that you will see the majestic one, and let that kindness, that mercy that falls on you, lead you to repentance. so that you will always know this circumstance that is greatly troubling you it is not because I am abandoning you; it's not because I am rubbing your nose in it. I am bringing that to you, perhaps for your great good, that you'll never know, or that you won't know yet. But I am mercifully dealing with you always and constantly. He only deals with you in grace. This is a God with a great big heart. And that heart is is shown to be greater when you hold on to, don't discard, when you hold on to the faithless and, and crooked, which is why we sing, even on a morning like this, We are not what we should be. That's not, we weren't what we were supposed to be. We are not what we should be. We are faithless but he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. He dwells in you and has claimed you for his own and will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a grand God that you can at the same time be faithless and permanently beloved. You can be twisted and sinful and unswervingly steadfastly secured at God's side by him himself. This will astonish you if you're aware of the waywardness in your own heart and don't stop there but move on to the merciful faithfulness of God. A mercy that is astonishing and that is then willing to use a power that is astonishing, which is the second point. In this still-fallen world, we still cannot do anything apart from him and his power. In this still-fallen world, we still cannot do anything apart from him and his power. Jesus comes down from the mountain with the disciples, and they arrive, obviously, in the middle of an issue. If we start at verse 40 and work backwards, we realize that this man brought his son to be healed and initially he was not put off by the fact that jesus wasn't there says he begged the disciples to heal him maybe he'd heard about the events at the beginning of the chapter it's been a while since the beginning of chapter 9 but you'll recall back at the beginning of this chapter jesus sent out the 12 on mission he sent them out to the the villages and bestowed on them authority, his authority, his power to heal, to teach, to cast out demons, and they did, from village to village to village to village. Maybe this guy had heard about that when he shows up, Jesus isn't there, no big deal. You guys are here, you've got a success record. Cast out this demon, and they couldn't. And they're all still standing around this great crowd, though Jesus is not there, and he has not texted them saying, I'm on my way. they're they're still there doing what? Well, because it's not the main point, we don't get it here in Luke, but if you read the other gospel accounts, you realize that what they're doing there is they're having an argument, particularly with the scribes. The scribes and the disciples are arguing probably about the claims that are supposedly being backed up by the healings. We are disciples of the Messiah. This Jesus is the Messiah. No, he isn't. You couldn't heal this boy. Well, yes, he is. We could before. But you couldn't heal this boy. You can't bring in the kingdom blessings, can you? So he's not, and you're not. Yes, we are. No, we aren't. Yes, we are. Back and forth. Having an argument. So why couldn't they heal him? Again, not explicit here, but implied in the connection between the end of 40 and what Jesus says in 41. But they could not, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Who's faithless there? Well, everybody, but in particular, this man he he brought his boy. And he certainly is not talking about the, the demon. Faithless, if you track with what Jesus says in Mark, in Mark when they say, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Because this one only comes out with prayer. Faithless is the disciples in particular. This one only comes out with prayer. Evidently, trying to piece this together, evidently they'd said something like, we command you in the name of Jesus, come out. And the demon said, "No." And they hadn't said, Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus, cast that demon out. They hadn't turned prayerfully towards God, had just presumed, perhaps, we've seen this before, we've done this before, I got this. And they spoke. And it didn't work. They'd forgotten where the power came from. And so they discovered again there are massive problems in this fallen world, spiritual problems that apart from Jesus and his power we can't touch. We can't do anything about them. We are called, one of the themes working through this chapter, we are called to follow Jesus into the world, into this fallen world, this this kind of messed up fallen world not to remain cloistered on a mountain, in a bubble somewhere, on perpetual retreat, to follow him into the world, but to follow him, to go with him into the world. And we're, we're inclined to forget either or sometimes both of those things, that we are called into the world or that we are called into the world with him. And the one thing being emphasized here is with him. Apart from him, they could not. They were unable to cast out this demon. The power that they need arrives when Jesus arrives. Jesus casts him out. That's what's needed in the face of this very real perplexing evil in the world. Jesus comes, rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to his father. Now, it's it's too much to say the boy gets saved. It doesn't say that. But we are shown something there. Jesus arrives. Kingdom blessings arrive. The imprisoning, shattering evil is removed. We're shown something there that that parallels passages like Ephesians 2 or 2 Timothy 2. You can jot those down, but you're probably familiar with them. Ephesians 2 talks about how we are a people before the gospel. We are a people who are servants of the evil one. 2 Timothy talks about how we are taken captive by the evil one to do his will. And Jesus comes and liberates, sets free. We see it, it modeled here, that the spiritual reality that happens when the gospel comes and his exodus is accomplished. We are set free from bondage. This is who we need. This is what we need. This is what's available to us. So take a moment and and check yourself. Do you, as as you think about walking through the world, called into the world, laborers in the harvest with him. assuming that you are actually walking into the world as laborers in the harvest, do you do so dependent on this Jesus and this power to cast out evil and set people free? You could check yourself by checking, particularly by checking your prayer life. What does, your, what does your prayer life look like? First of all, does your prayer life actually consist of people and needs out there in the world? I, I am not speaking against praying for oneself and one's family. Absolutely. In fact, I think we should spend more time praying for ourselves and for families, but particularly for ourselves. But additionally, Does it include people in situations out there? People in situations that are beyond your capabilities? And does it explicitly include, Lord, move, apart from you I can do nothing. Something that says, I need you to accomplish the impossible, what I'm called to. And as you're walking through the day, do you evaluate your prayer life, the the prayer life that's like the walking down the street, driving in your car prayer life, of a conscious dependence, Lord, not, again, not in every single moment. Sometimes it is really, really wise to pay attention to traffic. But repeatedly, an an awareness, a, a, a conscious awareness, Lord, I need you. I don't have this. I'm not capable. Help. Apart from you, I can't do what you've called me to do. I I can't be the person that I'm supposed to be, the one who loves my enemies and does them good and blesses them. That's not in me, so would you change me? And I can't speak words that will be persuasive and that will accurately show who you are, so will you give me words? And I can't actually, even if I speak the right words, reach into their hearts and... And adjust them. So, would you, in fact, intervene in their lives and change them that they hear and see? I need you to do that. I cannot, please. And then, when situations arise, do you take, I'll call it risky steps? Take the initiative to actually step and strike up a conversation, and ask somebody to lunch, and move it on to the next piece? Or do you see, I don't know where that's going to go, and stop? That is a way that you could picture moving with Jesus, with Jesus, into the world. Before you get there, you pray about it, you think about it, and ask him to go with you. While you're going, you ask him to go with you and to pave the way and move. And when the moment arises, you step forward. Or rather, do you live independent of him throughout the day, focused mostly on one's own kingdom, one's own self? We d- we don't want to live there. We- it's not, it's not where your life is found. Jesus told us, you find your life in giving your life away. We don't want to live there, but so often we do. So brothers and sisters, would you, would you please see and, and believe Jesus when he says, you'll find your life when you put it all on the table and walk with me into the world, dependent on me. When you engage with your, your spouse or your kids or your friends or your workmates or your classmates, prayerful and dependent and and open-eyed, looking for opportunities to love them and serve them and speak of Jesus. The power that you need is available to you in dependence on Jesus, mercifully available to you and not against you. So here is the Lord of glory. Glory. We see him on a mountaintop in in majesty ablaze. And then we see him down here on earth, clothed in humanity again, and longing for the time of departure. But while he's here, still here, he's the Lord of majestic mercy and power for you and for his kingdom. Trust him. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, you sent your Son. Thankfully, you sent your Son intending to shatter and break Him for evil so that we wouldn't be. Thank you for that. Would you cause in us your people, would you cause these these great realities of Both our fallenness and and your mercy and power, both of those, would you cause them to, to rise up and sit very near the surface that we're never far from them, that they always readily and quickly come to mind and control how we walk. Cause that to happen, please, in your people. Would you use us here individually and corporately would you use us to advance your kingdom independence on you, not independent of you, independence on you. Build your people and build your church and honor your name, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen.